Please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel 19, as we look at the return of King David after the insurrection and the civil war involving Absalom. Now, I'm glad to be back. Um, I know for the last two weeks you've been in very good hands with Dr. Kevin Jackson and Dr. Justin Wainscott. Now, for those, that, uh, for those of you that got to listen to both of them, I want you to know that you were in very, very good hands. Um, I want to give you four quick reasons why it's very good for you sometimes to get a break from me and to listen to other voices. So the first reason is what I just said. Number one, it is good for you to hear other voices. It's good for you to hear from men of God who love Jesus, who love His Word, and who love His church. That's good for you. Number two, it's also good for them. It's good for them to have the opportunity to preach and love and serve other congregations, and especially for Dr. Kevin Jackson, one of our own homegrown young men who was called to ministry out of this church and has gone and faithfully pastored and has come back to um, be an encouragement to us. Third, it's good for the kingdom. It's good for all of us to remember that we all belong to Jesus together and that there are faithful gospel ministers all around and we are lucky to have them to be able to come back and preach. And it's good for me. It's good for me to take a break, recharge my batteries. Of course, I was sick for one week, but to get to recharge my batteries and rest. And listen, for pastors who want to survive ministry for the long haul, it's important to rest. And I want, by God's grace, to serve as long as Jesus would have me. And so that's it. And so I feel like I'm returning. I'm, my batteries are ready. I've had three weeks to think about this sermon. That's not good. It's not good. Three weeks. Um, and so if you're in 2 Samuel 19, we're going to be looking at the return of an exiled king. King David, as he comes back, and David has to return to the throne, and the kingdom has to be renewed um, because it has been a tragedy. And so that's my first point this morning. We're going to be looking at the end of verses 8 through verses 15 as we look at first the kingdom in crisis. Notice that this text begins with a kingdom in crisis. It says there in chapter 19, beginning at the end of verse 8, if I can find my place, it says there, it says, Now all Israel had fled, every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent his message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring back the king to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, that's the general of, um, of Absalom's rebellion, and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army and from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So as you can imagine here, Israel is in incredible turmoil. 
They've just suffered an insurrection by the hands of Absalom and a civil war has broken out and David and his forces have been victorious. And now no one really knows what to do. Every tribe is arguing and everyone has their own political opinion. They know that King David delivered them from their hands of their enemies like the Philistines and they know that they have rebelled against David by anointing Absalom as king in his place. And all of this has caused a covenantal crisis in the kingdom. Now, we would call it a constitutional crisis in the United States. And here's the issue. Israel had made a covenant with King David when they anointed him as king in 2 Samuel. It says there in chapter 4, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. That's the problem. They made After they made a covenant with David, they then took Absalom and made a new covenant with Absalom. Now their failed Messiah, Absalom, is dead. That's the question before them. The question before them is whether or not the previous covenant with David is still in effect. Like, is David still the king? It's just like politicians to make this a question of policy interpretation or the legality of a previously ratified contract. And it's just like the theologians and priests of the day to turn this into a theological debate. The problem here, if you read that text again, is that their language gives away the truth. Notice that all, in all of their discussions, they're discussing about bringing back not simply David, but the king. Should we not bring back the king? You see, their, their language betrays them. They know that David is the queen, has always been the king, even through their rebellion. There's really been no question about it. David is the Lord's anointed, not simply Israel's anointed. So the question here is, how do they proceed? Now, David has heard all of this, and so he gets the ball rolling by contacting Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, back in Jerusalem, and he sends word through them to the elders of Judah, who are the last tribe in coming to the reality of this truth that David is really the king. And so David reminds them that, hey, I'm from the tribe of Judah. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but put yourself in Judah's position. They have a reason to be scared of David. After all, Judah is the primary tribe who rebelled against David. The elders of Judah participated in anointing Absalom king at Hebron, which was the leading city of Judah. They are rightfully terrified that David might return to Jerusalem and clean house in Judah. So David offers them an olive branch in the form of Amasa. Amasa was Absalom's general in Judah, and David assures them, I'm not going to execute him. I'm not going to execute the very man who led out the Israel, Israel's army into battle against Joab. Amasa will be allowed to take Joab's place as commander. Now, maybe this is punishment because Joab disobeyed David directly and put Absalom to death. Or maybe it's just practical politics. Either way... David woos them back to, their, back to his side. We're told that just as Absalom had won the hearts of all the men of Israel during the insurrection, the writer uses the same phrase for David, saying that David swayed the hearts of all Judah. So this, this schism, this tear in the kingdom, 
seems to be moving towards healing. But they're a kingdom in crisis. And a kingdom will always be in crisis when they know not who their king is. A church will always be in crisis when they know not who the king is. A country will always be in crisis when they know not who the king is. And that brings me to the second point, the complexity of repentance. Notice how the story moves on as David now meets people on his way back to Jerusalem, beginning in verse 16. It says, And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of Saul, of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king, and he was about to cross the Jordan. And, the king, and he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty. Oh, remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shemai be put to death for this, because he has cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shemai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now on his way back here, get the picture, David meets Shimei, who had followed David on his, ex, on his way out of Jerusalem, hurling insults and curses. And here, Shimei is as careful and cautious as he had been callous and careless on David's way out of the city just a few days before. And this is a complex situation. Notice what makes it complex. First, Shimei doesn't go into hiding when David returns as king. That's what I would have done. <laughs> Instead, he brings a thousand Benjamites along with him to help David back over the Jordan. So the question is, will David at this moment reach for his scepter and extend mercy or reach towards his sword and execute justice? And how will all of those with David... And all of those with Shammai, how will they respond to whatever David chooses? Do all of the thousand Benjamites here need to, feed, need to also fear a purge when David takes the throne? They're just as nervous as the men of Judah. After all, by the way, David's never been very happy. The Benjamites have never been very happy with David from the time that Saul had been killed and Jonathan had been killed and Ishbosheth had been anointed as king over Israel as well and he also died. Second, what makes this complex, if you read carefully, if you're an inquisitive mind like me, what also makes this complex is there's this looming question. Is Shimei actually sincere? Is he sincere? Right? I mean, notice that he admits his sin and he asks for mercy. 
Now, some could argue that, well, old Shimei's sudden change of heart is pretty convenient. Don't you think that's kind of convenient for him to have a sudden change of heart? I mean, after all, when David was exiled and fleeing, it was really easy to taunt David. And now that he's returning as the victorious king, Shimei's tongue and his knees seem a little more weak. This is all so convenient, in fact, that Abishai says, well, let's just kill this guy. This guy should just die. So the question is, is is he really sincere? But I want to ask this question, too. Is Shimei any different from David? Is he? Is he really any different than David or from us? Think about it. David's lust got him into this very situation, didn't it? We're here because of David's lust. And why is Shimei here? Because of his anger. Shimei is in this situation because of his anger. David lusted. Shimei simply was angry. The question is, um, is he being sincere? And I would say, in fact, Shimei's confession here is word for word the same as David's confession when Nathan confronted him over Bathsheba. David simply said to Nathan, or before the Lord, I have sinned. Notice the end of verse 20. What does Shimei say? I know I have sinned. Was David more sincere than Shimei is here? Are we really forgiven based on the level of our sincerity? Is that really where we want to go? Do you want your salvation to be based on your sincerity? Let me ask it this way. I want to, well, let me give you some examples. You know the Bible was filled with examples of those who look sincere and who aren't. And the Bible also is filled with examples of those who um, seem very suspect and yet find mercy. Take Esau, for example. He sought forgiveness with tears, and he didn't find it. Take the tax collector in the temple who simply confessed his sin without any great show of sincerity, and he received mercy. The answer to this question ultimately falls on the sovereignty of God. You see, God is free to forgive, and God is free to dispense mercy according to his own purposes, regardless of how sincere you are. God is free. You see, here's the issue. The reason is because God's mercy must exalt God. God's mercy must ultimately exalt God. So, if the emphasis is on our sincerity, then ultimately our sincerity exalts who? Me. I'm more sincere than you. Jesus must love me more because I'm more sincere than you. Listen, don't get stuck in that. I don't want my salvation to be based on my sincerity, but but, but on God's promise. I want God to be the one who's sincere, not me. Y'all can go home and think about that the rest of the day. I am saved not because because I'm really, really, really sincere, but because Jesus is really, really good. And Jesus is really, really merciful. That's a good place for amen. Go home and think about that. David chooses, though, to offer mercy. Notice that. He says to Shammai exactly what God has said to him. He says the same thing to Shammai that God told him. uh, When David confessed his sin, God said, you will not die. And David looks at Shammai and says, you won't die. And he gives him an oath. So David extends here the same grace and mercy that he himself had also received. 
And I think Jesus said something about this too when he said that we should forgive how? We should forgive in the same way that we've been forgiven. That we show mercy out of the great reservoir of mercy that we have received. David had received mercy, so David offered it to Shammai regardless of his sincerity. But there's a third reason that this is complex, and I might just be making it more complicated than it, than it is. But it's really the question of David's sincerity. Is David really sincere here? That's a question too, right? Is, this just, is David just being merciful as, a, as an issue of policy or an issue of politics, right? Is David here simply making a policy decision regarding Shammai? Is he simply extending mercy because it's politically expedient? It'll make David look better as he returns and tries to unite the kingdom. And I only ask that because it seems as though David keeps a wary eye on Shammai the rest of his life and instructs Solomon to execute justice on him later on. And if you read ahead, that actually does happen. It actually happens. Now, all of this should remind us that repentance and forgiveness can be a complicated business. Repentance and forgiveness can be a very complicated business. In our broken world, we can and always will wonder about our own sincerity. And we will wonder about the sincerity of others in regards to repentance and forgiveness. And listen, it's best to leave that in the hands of Jesus. He will sort it out one day. He will separate the wheat from the tares on that day. And all I can do now is take people at their word that they, have, they, that they are forgiving and they are sincere. That's all I can do. So that's the complexity of repentance. Notice third, the confidence of grace. I got to move fast. Y'all got to listen faster. It's y'all's fault. Y'all's fault. Look what he says there. He meets another person. He says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the, king, until the day that he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame, and he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to them, said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. This is the confidence of grace. Notice, in case, in case you missed it in the previous, first, in the previous verses, Shemai was accompanied by Ziba. Ziba was the servant of Saul and his sons. Ziba had went out to meet David on his flight from Absalom at the Mount of Olives and had given David provisions for the journey. And it was there that David inquired about Mephibosheth. Like, where is Mephibosheth, your master? And Ziba made up this story about Mephibosheth staying in Jerusalem and longing for the kingdom to be returned to him because it had been taken from him. And that story made Ziba... And the provisions that he gave made Ziba appear to be very loyal to David. And here we learn that the whole story that Ziba, that fed David, was a lie. The whole thing was a lie. From the day David left the city, 
Mephibosheth had not taken care of his legs or feet or trimmed his beard. He's lame. He can't get himself onto a donkey or do anything for himself. And he here shows David that though he couldn't physically go with David into exile, he could do it in spirit. He wouldn't take care of himself and he would live as an exile inside the palace. He demonstrated his loyalty to David in Jerusalem, even as Absalom strolled in, taking a very great risk. The issue, though, is that David believed Ziba's lies and gave him all of Mephibosheth's property. And David's stuck now. You see, Ziba really did lie, but Ziba really did also help David by giving him provisions. Ziba took advantage of the situation for himself, but he made a horrible miscalculation with David, he never thought David would actually return as king. But Mephibosheth didn't. Mephibosheth was going to live as an exile until David returned. And the basis for, da- for Mephibosheth doing this is the grace and mercy that he had received. You notice his answer? Look at, it, look at his argument. He said, my Lord the king is like an angel of God. You do what seems good to you. He says, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set me at your table. You treated me as a son. You extended grace to me. He says, I I don't care what happens to the property. I don't care about my property. I care about my relationship to the king. David, I just want you to know that I did not betray you. Despite what he says, he can have the property. I want you to know that I am following you. You see, the issue here is David assumes Ziba wants property. But Mephibosheth doesn't. He says, I'm happy to live knowing that you're safe. Now here's what this means. There's two lessons here. The first is a lesson of perspective. Many of us would do well to be more like Mephibosheth. Many of us would do well to care more about our relationship to Jesus than our relationship to property, or our relationship to our careers, or our relationship to other people. We would do well to care more about that, because one is eternally more significant than the other. Amen? I want to stand before Jesus, and I want him to know that I'm I'm sticking with you. Though none go with me, I will follow you. The second lesson, though, is a lesson of grace. What grace did in Mephibosheth's life was that it gave him the confidence to simply do what he could. He simply did what he could. Listen, he couldn't go with David into exile. He couldn't fight in the army. He was lame. But you know what else he was? He was loyal. He was loyal. Listen, the only thing he could offer David was unclipped toenails and an untrimmed beard. That's all he brought to David this day. He brought untrimmed toes and an untrimmed beard. That is not, by the way, the stuff of legend. And what I mean by that is that he would never be a famous military tactician like Joab or a mighty warrior like Ittai, but... What Mephibosheth could do was simply love his king and long for his return. That's all he could do. Love his king and long for his return. Listen, you don't have to be the most gifted scholar or the most talented person to make a difference in God's kingdom. Hear me. That's what our world says. That's not what King Jesus says. 
You don't have to be the most talented or the most gifted. You don't have to have the most influence. You don't have to have the most followers on social media. The people that make the biggest difference in God's kingdom are simply those that love King Jesus and long to be with him. Those people are salty. Those people are salt and light in a very dark world. Listen, it is the grace of Jesus that empowers us to do what we can with what we have been given. Like the little boy in the Gospels who just had five loaves and two fish. You put that in the hands of Jesus and that's enough. Listen, we will stand before King Jesus not because of any of our efforts or because of any of our merits, but simply because by His grace, He has welcomed us to His table as broken and lame as we are. Now that is the good news of the gospel. We would do well to look at people the way Jesus looks at people. And then finally, the contentment of faithfulness. Oh my gosh, we got to go. 31 through 40. He says, Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogelim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. And Bazillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over to the Jordan with the king? Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham, let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his home. And the king went on to Gil Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. This is the contentment of faithfulness. Barzill Barzillai here comes with David and accompanies him to the Jordan. He's cared for him and may have him providing food and shelter at the very risk of his own property and life. And David is incredibly grateful for this 80-year-old man and his family. And David rightfully wants to repay his kindness by inviting him to live in the king's court. But Barzillai protests, right? He says, I can't enjoy food. I can't hear anymore. I can't see anything or enjoy dancing. I can't hear music or melodies. I just want to go home and die in my hometown. I just want to go die among my family and my friends. That's all I want. Barzillai is content that he has been faithful to his king and has faithfully discharged his duty. And by the way, David is content with Barzillai. But Barzillai does offer his son Chimham. That's who he is. He's, he's the son of Barzillai. We know that because over in 1 Kings chapter 2 it says, Deal faithfully with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. He tells that to Solomon. And here's what this means for us. You can't miss this, right? 
You can't miss here the blessing of David on Barzillai. David blesses him, and look at David's promise. David, prom- David doesn't promise to care for Barzillai's kids in the way that David chooses. That's what Barzillai said, you do to him what you would do for me. And David doesn't say that. No, David promises to specifically love his children in a way that would honor and please Barzillai. I think that there is significance in that promise. I think here that Barzillai, that I think here that Barzillai's wishes for his sons are the same as David's wishes for his sons. I think they're in alignment. If you want the blessing and contentment that God intends, then you too should align your prayers with the same will of God. I think Barzillai and David want the same thing here. I think their wills are aligned. And I think if you really want the blessing and contentment that God intends, then your prayers with the will of God need to be in alignment. Especially parents. Hear me, parents. All of you that have children, listen to this. When you want the same thing for your kids that God wants for your kids, you'll find blessing and contentment. Do you want the same things for your children that Jesus wants for your children? At the end of the day, is that really what you want? Children, do you really want what Jesus wants for you? Do you really want that? Listen. You won't find contentment because your children are rich or famous or because they live the American dream. It will be because they are in the care of King Jesus. Put your kids in the hands of King Jesus and what he wants for them. You want what Jesus wants and you will find that. And this story ends. That's the blessing of contentment. After all, what do we want to hear one day anyway? That's the contentment of faithfulness. What do we want to hear one day? What we really want to live for is to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's really what we want. And then notice finally this story ends with the cracking of the kingdom. Notice here how the story ends. It's not not all tied up in a nice bow. It says there at the end of verse 40, it says, all the people of Judah and half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to him, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away And brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him. And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were not we the first to speak of bringing our king back? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. You see here, this story ends with an unhealed schism. David cannot fully mend the rift that is formed in the kingdom. And this rift over the next couple hundred years will widen and narrow. And eventually it will end with Israel being split. Eventually the kingdom will be torn in half. But even in this brokenness, I want you to know that there's a longing here for a unified kingdom. They long for it. And that longing can only be fulfilled when Jesus returns. You see, when Jesus returns, it will be vastly different than when David returned. You see, David is returning to a people and a kingdom that will always be broken. 
always be ravaged by sin and rebellion and division. And this division will remain even today among us until God's king comes and makes everything right again. God would point to that king throughout their time of division and exile. He would do that all through Isaiah and Jeremiah and point them to a future signal. It says in Isaiah 9, it says in Isaiah 9, it says, He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim any longer. That day's coming. You see, that signal that God raised was God's true King Jesus, the heir of David and the heir of the promises made to David. You see, when Jesus returns, and we long for that day, Jesus will remove all causes for sin and rebellion. They will all be gone. And on that day, every nation, tribe, and tongue will be united under the banner of King Jesus. There will be no fighting There will be no bickering. There will be no political factions or parties. There will be no more divisions or denominations or schisms. We will simply be God's people in God's place, under God's king, under God's rule and blessing. And for us now, what this means is just like Israel in their exile longed for the kingdom to be restored and renewed, we now as followers of Christ long for the return of King Jesus. So, until Jesus returns, let us all be willing to be sojourners in exile, even like Joab and Abishai. Let us love and long for our king like Mephibosheth. And faithfully serve our king and find contentment by being faithful to him like Brazili. And oh, let us find grace and mercy like Shimei, who has at one time cursed the king. May we all find hope in the gospel. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that we would long for our king Jesus and that we would love him. So Father, now we pray for any of those in this room that do not know Jesus, that today would be the day that they would find peace and contentment and forgiveness and love, and they would find faith to place in King Jesus. Father, for others who, are, who have acted much more like Shemai than like Mephibosheth or Barzillai, Father, may they find mercy. May they find repentance. And Father, may they find welcome and opening arms of King Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would speak now for Jesus' sake. Amen.